Hey, good morning. morning. It's so awesome to be with you this morning. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. When I was a kid, I was about six years old, and we moved into a neighborhood, and it was one of those tract home neighborhoods, you know, where you just, every house is kind of the same, just maybe a different color. But, um, but it, was, it, 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 was, it was the biggest house we'd ever lived in, and uh, it was on Jennings Avenue. And I remember, uh, I remember moving in, learning where the bus stop is and how all that works, and, and uh, all of our neighbors, there was kids all over the neighborhood. Well, it just so happens that the person next door to us, the person next door to us had two huge dogs. I mean, enormous dogs. They were Great Danes. Do you know what a Great Dane is? It's essentially a miniature horse. I mean, it's not even a miniature horse. It's a horse that looks like a dog. It is an incredible, an incredible, uh, incredibly big dog. And so I was in, in my little six-year-old body and brain. I mean, it just looked huge. I was not taller than these dogs. And in between our backyards was a uh, wire fence, you know, like, a, like one of those, it, was, it had squares, it was weird, it wasn't chain link fence, it was like a wire fence, and so we could see right through, it was like you couldn't hardly see any fence there, it just looked like, and so they would, whenever we would go out to play, they would go nuts, they would come up to the fence and, <laughs> it would just like be endless, I think I gave myself a headache right there, I was, <sighs> That was awesome, wasn't it? Too bad we don't have uh, video. Okay, so, so these dogs, they would just go crazy. They would go nuts, and it freaked me and my brother out. I mean, we just didn't know exactly how to do it. I remember one time they had some friends who came up to their house, and they brought a, little, a couple of little boys, like little like three-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old maybe, and they walked up to the house, and one, somehow the dog got out of the front door, and just started, jumped on these two kids, started rolling them around and was licking them. They were playing. But the boys, these little boys, they did not think they were playing. They were screaming and crying for bloody murder. And we were just standing there watching it. I remember being in the street. My brother and I were playing catch. We watched it. We were like. Don't ever go near those dogs. The lady who owned the dogs. For some reason, she had a neck problem, so she wore a neck brace all the time. She had a neck brace, and she drove a huge Cadillac, like, a, like one of those early 70s with the big fins, you know? It was like a turquoise Cadillac. So it was like the weirdest thing. I just thought, this is one weird neighbor. I do not want to have anything to do with this neighbor. Well, it just so happens that one day she comes up to the, to the door, our door, and she knocks on the door and she says, you know, she came to the door and we saw her when my mom opened the door. She said, would you like to come over to our house and uh, watch my dogs? They're, they're going to have puppies. And I'd love for your boys to come over and watch them have puppies. We were like, <laughs> we were so scared. We were like, we do not want to go over there to that house. That is the scary house. Well, it turns out mom 
arranged for us to go. So we went, and we went over to the house on the appointed day, and the, the, the dogs were having their little puppies, and it was such an awesome thing. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. You know, I, I hadn't, I'd never seen anything like that. Never had seen dogs have puppies, and they came, and they were coming out in these little bags of water, and she was poking the bags, and, and they were, the puppies, you know, were coming out. What? I don't know. It was just, it was just, it was just weird. Anyway, um, so it was, so it was amazing to watch this happen. Turns out her house was a lot like our house. Turns out she was kind of a normal lady with big, weird dogs. I think it's, it's often in our lives that we don't really know who our neighbors are that we don't really understand who people are until we get to know them, until we engage in their lives. It's a challenging prospect to know our neighbors. If you think about your neighbors, who they are, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous challenge to get to know them and begin to be integrated in their lives unless you have a common uh, theme that you rally around, or you have kids. It, it's so much easier to, to, for moms to meet moms when they're at the playground with kids, but it is a challenge so many times if we don't know what we have in common with them, if we don't understand who they are. Um, this, is a, this is, I think, one of our greatest challenges as Christians, is that when Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means we've got to know who our neighbor is. So that's why I've given you that little sheet of paper that says Neighborhood 9. Can you pull that out for a moment? I want you to look at that, look at that sheet of paper. If you don't have this sheet of paper, the ushers are on the side. You can just raise your hand, and they will hand you one. If you don't have a piece of paper, I want you to look at it. That fleece right there at the bottom, it says, Your Home. Your home, that's your house. So if you look at two houses to your right and two houses to your left, and then across the street, here's a couple more guys. Just keep your hands up. They'll see you in just a moment. You look at, you look at the house directly across the street from you, who those neighbors are, and then their two neighbors. Are you guys tracking with me? So five across and five on your side. Are you tracking with me? The question is, can you name all of those families? Do you know what they do for a living? But here's the real question. So you can fill all that out. You can, as you begin to fill that out, I'm going to tell you what to do with it as we go through the message today. The question for every one of us who have received a revelation from God about his son Jesus and about being rescued from our own sins and our own failures and now follow Christ, the challenge for us is how do we love our neighbor? Do we love our neighbor? How can we love our neighbor? Because it is in loving your neighbor that you really demonstrate that you love God. And we're going to read about that here in Luke chapter 10, but I want to challenge you to look past their names and their occupation and things that you would know just by observing. I want to challenge you to know what's going on in their lives. Is there anything, do you know anything that's going on in your neighbor's lives 
that they need prayer for or that they need that they're wrestling with or they're struggling with that you could either pray for or become the solution for you in many cases will hold a solution for them because that is how i believe the holy spirit works with his people is he wants to introduce himself to the world through his people so there's something challenging here that I want to give you. As you know, we've been in this series, In the City, For the City. Over 100 churches are going through this series. Three messages, a God for the city, which talks about God's love for the city. A Christian for the city, or sorry, a church for the city, which talks about who we are as the people of God, who we are as the church in the city, that it's not just defined by one chapel or by, by our local church body, that we're part of something much greater, something bigger that God's trying to do within the city of Austin, that his church is partnering together, who we are, what, how we view the world, how we view our city. And then finally today is a Christian for the city. A Christian for the city. And I, I think we're going to take the next couple of weeks and we're going to go and we're going to explore some responsibilities that we have as individuals. But when you say a Christian for the city, you have all kinds of things conjured up in your mind. A Christian for the city. Well, I'm going to pray for my city. Well, absolutely, we should pray for our city. But often we find ourselves praying for faceless, nameless people. And while that's good, while there's nothing wrong with that, I think God wants us to go deeper. When we think about a Christian for, us, for the city, we often might think about doing good deeds or serving or going someplace in our city where there's great need and helping people with that great need. Feeding the hungry, helping the poor. Should we do that? Absolutely we should do that. That is what we should, we should be engaged in those acts. But somehow there is often a, uh, something that happens where we do those events or we do those acts, we've got an event coming up ourselves. We do those events and then we really don't have a continuing dynamic going on where we're engaged. The best place for you to be the light in the darkness is in your neighborhood. Because it's the most consistent. It happens most often. For a Christian... To love his or her city, it actually means to love his or her neighbors. How do we do that? How should we do that? Let's read the account in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. I want you to underline that little Sentence in your Bible. Do this and you will live. First thing we notice is there's an expert in the law. There's an expert. It's a, typically a Pharisee. But you need to understand sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap. <laughs> sometimes we're too hard on them. Sometimes we see them in sort of a comic strip fashion that they are the arch enemies of Jesus. 
They are not the arch enemies of Jesus in the scripture to make the story good. They are not Lex Luthor to Jesus Superman. Not Darth Vader to Jesus Skywalker. Somehow in the story, we, just, we, we create cartoon characters out of them. They were, not, they were not these mean, angry people. Now, some of them, I'm sure, were mean. Some of them were angry, and some of them were even evil. Jesus was upset at them many times because the things that they said did not match what was internal, what they did. Okay, So they had a shell of religion. But make no mistake, the Pharisees' idea of honoring God was knowing his word, was making sure that we, that, that, that people, all the people that they were in contact with, that there was a, a sense of guarding his word and understanding it, teaching it, allowing people to know it and to obey it. Here's the thing most of us don't re- realize or remember is that many of them believe that once the nation of Israel obeyed in a great way, in, in, in a pure way, once they finally obeyed his word, once they came into complete agreement and obedience with his word, that would usher in the Messiah who would come and take over. That it was the obedience of the word that would usher that moment in. And so for many of them, there was a desire to know the word, to do the word, to protect the word in their heart. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now, of course, what happened and what happens always is they wanted to know exactly how to obey and that obedience was all they ended up focusing on and they didn't even obey it themselves. They got caught in their trap. They got caught in their trap. The law always makes us aware of sin. It's the thing that helps us know if we're hitting it or not hitting it. Jesus came not just to undo the law. He didn't come to undo all of that. He still wants you to obey. But Jesus came with his grace and his mercy and the sacrifice for sin. Because you, there's, it's, there's a difficulty in us using our willpower to obey the scriptures. It's not enough. It's not enough to receive the acceptance of our Father. Jesus comes to give you grace to be the sacrifice for your own failures and your own sins, to take your place. You don't have to pay the penalty for sin any longer. And then he gives you something else. He gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can be empowered to obey what's in the Scriptures. That's a pretty sweet deal. What it means is is that Jesus, it's a sweet deal. It is. It's called the gospel. It's called good news. You don't have to pay the penalty for your own sins. He pays the penalty, and then he goes one better. He fixes the game. He fixes it so that you can obey. That's pretty awesome. I don't know if you haven't heard the gospel message in a while. That's it. (laughs) So this expert in the law is asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're not sure of his motives. He may be genuinely asking this, this teacher who has healed all these people. So Jesus turns it on the expert and says, how do you read it? Tell me what it says. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, which is the Shema. In Jewish life, the Shema was a centerpiece. It It was in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That means he is God and there is no other. And then it says, Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. 
And then he, this teacher in the law quotes Leviticus 19.18, which is also in the law. It says, to love your neighbors as you love yourself. So this expert gets it right. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Eternal life is to be lived out here. It's not just the sweet by and by. We're not just talking about going to heaven, not just making it, just hanging on till we get to heaven. <laughs> loving God and loving your neighbor, there's, a, there's life that's in it. People need to see that life. People need to witness that life and experience it. And so Jesus is saying, do these things and you will live. But then comes verse 29. Verse 29, he says, but he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he was thinking about how he was doing. He was thinking about, am I, am I doing this? Is this working? So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The question he asks is, who is my neighbor? So I get it. Love your neighbor yourself. So who, am I, who does that, who, who counts? Could it be that he was suggesting that some people are non-neighbors? Could he be suggesting that, uh, could, he, could he have been clouded by the idea that we're just supposed to love God's people? Those who are holy. I love, I love my own kind. Could be. Could be that was what was rattling around in his, in his head. Certainly there was a, a sense for teachers of the law that we needed to be ceremonially clean and we need to adhere to the rules and the regulations of every little thing or else we would become dirty and polluted by the world. That's why the Pharisees asked Jesus, why don't your disciples um, wash their hands? Why don't they go through ceremonial washing? Why don't they fast like, like others? Why? They went through all... There was, this, there was this process by which they, were, they had become consumed in the rules and the regulations. They'd missed the whole point. They'd missed the point of the life of God. So there was a tendency to focus on being removed from that which is impure. When we think of the word holiness, often we get this idea in our minds. Holiness. It conjures up pictures of of <laughs> not uh, don't drink don't uh, don't drink smoke or chew or go with girls who do <laughs> that is that's there certainly is an idea there <laughs> about purity but here's what I here's what I will tell you is that is that is that holiness the, the, uh, the, the definition that I think is so important for us to focus on is the idea of being set apart, but setting apart for something. God has set you apart for a purpose, for a purpose to live his life out in the world, for you to be an influencer, for you to be one of the people that he can let his life flow through. That's what you're called to be set apart for. We see this little passage about the greatest commandment, but John, the Apostle John in 1 John 4.20 says the same thing. I'm going I'm to read it to you in the Message Bible. It says, if anyone boasts, 
I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. You've got to love both. Okay, so here's the expert, and he poses the question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, in turn, responds with a story, as Jesus often does. Let's read the story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the thing you have to realize when Jesus begins to tell the story is all of his hearers would have understood that the road between Jericho and Jerusalem was a dangerous road. It would not be surprising that robbers had descended upon one lone traveler. They're all thinking in their minds, yeah, well, when you travel that road by yourself, you're going to get beat up. Because that happened often. This was a well-known place of crime and uh, activity that would put people in danger. So Jesus is using the story. He's connecting with his hearers and answering this question, who is my neighbor? So this man, he's going, he's on his way. They beat him. They left him half dead. So verse 31 says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. You got to see it. He's, he, in the hearers of Jesus in that day, they would have understood the priest was somehow ignoring the need. And, and Jesus begins to paint this picture that's so disappointing to his hearers. He says, a priest passed by and walked on the other side. Then a Levite, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. It's like Jesus is leading up to something. And in the hearers, I think they might have been thinking, okay, a priest and then a Levite. A priest is a holy man, one who was responsible in the temple. Then a Levite, which is uh, the, the people of God that were re responsible for caring for the temple. This is a whole tribe of people. A priest, and then a Levite, and then a Pharisee's going to come. That's what's going to happen. A Pharisee's going to do something awesome. It's kind of like Jesus was telling a joke. <laughs> a rabbi, a pastor, and I walked into a bar. No. <laughs> He says, he says, a priest walks by and passes by on the other side. A Levite walks by, passes on the other side, ignores this man, which is, of course, a sad thing. But it would not have been surprising to people because these people had, there, there had been a, a degrading of the idea and they tried to remain separate, pure from those kinds of things. I think, just to, just to pause here for a moment, I, I do think that, the world looks at the priest and the Levite, people who represent God, and they don't always have a good picture, do they? They have a picture of disappointment. The world knows exactly what you're supposed to do, what you and I are supposed to do. They know it well. And when we don't do it, they're disappointed. Make no mistake, they get it. Jesus is highlighting this disappointment by saying the priest passed by and the Samaritan 
or sorry, the Levite passed by. And then he, but then he gets to essentially the punchline of the story. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. You can imagine his hearers, what? A Samaritan? This is ridiculous. This cannot be. Now, Here's why this was such a powerful story. You have to understand the backdrop. You have to understand the history, okay? So time for a moment of a history lesson. Can you do it? It's Sunday morning, I know, but I need you to track with me. Okay, can you go with me? little history lesson. Here it is. Who were the Samaritans? In 1 Kings, you see, 1 Kings 11 and 12, what you see is Solomon dies. Solomon is David's son. David, the greatest king of Israel. Rehoboam takes over. A fun word to know and say. <laughs> say it together with me. Rehoboam. Rehoboam. Rehoboam becomes king. Rehoboam becomes king. Now what you have to understand is during the building of the temple, big massive temple in Jerusalem, taxes had been high. Taxes had been difficult to pay. But all of Israel's enemies had been conquered. The temple has been built. It's a time for rest. And so... All of Israel assembles to ask Rehoboam for less taxes. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> he, he, they, all of Israel gathers together and says, stop putting this heavy burden on us. We don't, we don't need it. You don't need it. And so he says, Rehoboam responds by asking counsel from two groups of people. One group is the older group, wise old men, friends of his dad's. Another group, elders. The other group is his own buddies who are in power with him now. The old men say, lift the burden from the people and they'll love you forever. You'll become a great king. The young men and counselors say, you need to establish who you are what you do, you are the king, and, no, and, and you need to prove it to these people. Keep, it, keep the taxation hard on them. He was foolish. He, this is the third generation from David. So now, three generations in, the king has lost the heart of David, the heart of a shepherd for God's people. So he hammers them, and ten tribes, as a result of this taxation and this idea, they separate. Benjamin and Judah are the two tribes that stay, but the rest of the ten, they separate. Assyria begins to grow in power. Assyria begins to, to, to become more and more powerful. By 722, 722, they overthrow the uh, the northern ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom. So they overthrow them, and then their political approach, the, the political approach of Assyria is when they conquer a people, they put them together with four other people groups. In other words, four or five different nations represented. And they put them together and they, in these little colonies, and they force them to live together. So they begin to intermarry, they begin to live life together, and, and the, the nationality is obliterated. Pretty cool, pretty cool uh, conquering idea. They assimilate people into their, um, their kingdom. And, 
and they obliterate them as a nation. In a society of tribalism, this was the best way to obliterate a people group. And Samaritans are this obliterated people. They are assimilated into Assyria. So some of the Samaritans, they held on to some of the teachings of their Jewish heritage, of their Israel heritage. And so they, they kept some of those, but they didn't keep the same ones. They didn't, they, it wasn't pure it wasn't the same. In fact, if you, look, if you read John 4, are you still with me? I see your glaze, I see the glaze going over your eyes. Are you still with me? Okay, so in John chapter 4, you see Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman, and they start arguing over worship. You remember what he says? He says, you worship this way, I worship, we, the Jewish people worship this way, they're missing the whole thing. Here's what's going to happen. People are going to worship in spirit and truth. He says that because the Samaritans actually had their own modified temple and Torah. Isn't that amazing? So you got to see how reprehensible this group of people is who had bought in to the Samaritan way or the Assyrian way and were half-bloods, half-breeds, who now have somehow polluted the teachings of Israel, teaching of God. So for Jesus to use this was like, a huge shock to their system. So Jesus says, okay, so history lesson over. You got it? You know who the Samaritans are now? Samaritans are really n- not people that Jewish people like. Um, but but you got to understand, it was a, an, ag- an aggressive dislike. It was kind of like the, you know, the most northeastern liberal, uh, you know, political person you know, reaching out to a Southern Republican Christian. Or it was really, here's what you'll understand. You'll understand that it was like a longhorn reaching out to an Aggie. It was that bad. So here you are. He, he begins to speak of the Samaritan who took pity on him. Verse 34 says, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the, main, uh, sorry, put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So then Jesus turns to the expert and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Remember, this is all, this is all answering the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer that Jesus gives is, wrong question. Wrong question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, and you could see him, the one who had mercy on him, I guess. The answer is obvious. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I want you to read, just see just a few ideas that are hidden, I think, in the story that Jesus tells. Go with me now. 
I'm going to talk about the goodness of the Good Samaritan. This is, this is the Samaritan, the good things that he did. It's really amazing to see. Jesus articulates a man. Number one, he used his own resources. He used the resources that he had personally. He was generous. During our current economic challenge, it is difficult to be willing to help people who are in deep need with our own finances. Listen, I will tell you that the church will be the storehouse. There's no doubt about it. We will be honorable. We will be good stewards of everything that you give us. We will help the poor. We will help the needy. But there is, and so whenever you give, you can be assured that you are doing that. But there is something really powerful about you personally helping your neighbor. He used his own resources. When you sow seeds... When you sow seeds like that, you have confidence that God's going to take care of you. You, ex you express and demonstrate confidence that God's going to take care of you. So he used his own resources. He was generous. Next, he included another person in the work. He included another person in the work. He came to the innkeeper and he said, okay, I'm, here's a guy. I want you to look after him. I got to go, uh, you know, I'm on my journey. I got I to gotta go do my stuff. Could you look after him? He includes another person in the process. I think we must make sure that we are partners with our spouse, with our kids, with other members of people in the neighborhoods. I guarantee you there are other believers in your neighborhood that you don't know right now, and they're not far from your house. And for you to get to know those, they may be one of these nine people, nine, nine houses. There's a partnership that the, commu the community of God works best in these, in these partnerships. So they, we must do this together. When we do it together, we make the job easier. Okay, so number three, he made arrangements to stay involved. He made arrangements to stay involved. He made a commitment. He said, I'm going to go, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to check on him again. One of the things that we're doing, April 9th, you've all been asked to save the date. We're going to do a thing on Saturday. It's going to be Saturday morning and afternoon, and we're going, to, we're going to give you lots of opportunities to get your hands dirty in serving people. But I want you to know that it's not, I, what, I, what we're looking for is not just a one-and-done type of approach. We're not looking for an event-driven concept of serving our city or being a Christian in our city. That's, that's the reason today I'm highlighting your first primary responsibility. But I want you to know when we... When we do this on April 9th, when we go and serve and partner with these other organizations that are already doing great work in our city, what we're doing is we're getting our hands dirty so we can feel and we can see and we can understand what the needs are. We're not just doing it to do it once so we can feel a little better about ourselves. We're actually doing it to get involved to see where we can connect, to do research, to figure out where we're going to serve as one chapel, what kind of things we're going to be involved in, engaged in the city. And I want all of you to have the experience. I want us to be together. I want us to have this shared experience together of serving our city because I don't want to minimize it. It's still good to feed the poor, feed every hungry person that we can, make sure that people have the resources, make sure that we are demonstrating the love of Christ practically and tangibly, no doubt about it. But I think what we see here in Jesus' story is a commitment to what's next. Number four, he committed future resources. Future resources. You know what that means? That means he had faith that God was going to give him enough, that he was going to have enough money to bring some more money back. He said, he said to the innkeeper, he said, here's... Here's, here's some money, take care of whatever he needs, and then when, you, when I come back, if you've spent anything else, I'll pay you back. 
That means he believed that he was going to have enough to pay him back. I think the only way you have that kind of confidence is if you're willing to give away. If you are in the, are you, if you're in the habit of hoarding and amassing and, and, and selfishly keeping everything that you have because there might not be enough. You got the wrong idea. It's not, that's not reflective of Christ. That's not reflective of, of God's desire for you or his desire for the world. And it keeps the provision of God from coming into your life. Now let's look at four things that we see in the story from the grace of the grace that the Good Samaritan had. Now, the, the, the goodness of the Good Samaritan was things that he did that were just really, we can learn from. The grace in the Good Samaritan's actions are things that were hard to do, and he needed grace to do them. Because this, is, this was really the difficult part of making these decisions. Here's the first one. He did not choose the time or the place. <laughs> it was incredibly inconvenient to be on your way from Jerusalem to Jericho and then see some guy in the ditch it was incredibly inconvenient because you got to imagine he was on his way on the trip for a reason. He had places to go. He had things to do. Sometimes we don't stop and help because we're just so busy and doing our thing. And we don't want to tolerate inconvenience. We kind of are addicted to convenience. He did not, number two, he did not necessarily agree with the man's political or theological views. <laughs> Helping people should not be contingent on what their theological or political views are. <laughs> we got to be willing to associate and to connect with people and serve people who are not like us. We don't discriminate. People of all walks of life need to experience the love of Christ. No matter who they are, no matter where they are. And listen, it's, it, it is an interesting process to, to exit the mall and see uh, people with signs wanting uh, some help. And they're right there. They stare us down every week. And, <laughs> and I have heard people say things like, well, they're just going to go spend it on booze. Interestingly enough, Jesus did not make determining how they spent the money a requirement for giving it to them. Wow. <laughs> or for taking care of poor people. What he, what he wants in general is people engaged in other people's lives so they can coach them what to spend it on. The last thing is he did not accomplish his plans for the day. His plans were wrecked. So he didn't get to choose the time and place, but it was also a, something that happened. He didn't get to accomplish whatever he was supposed to accomplish that day. It was unproductive. He was unproductive. Here's the problem. We, as American Christians, must break our addiction to convenience, agreement with others, and productivity. We're addicted to these things. We love these things. We want everything to be convenient. We want to work with people who we like and who like us, because we can, and we want to be productive. We want to see the results. Listen, if you're engaged in helping people who don't have a life or they've been beat up and bloodied, it takes time. 
And sometimes there will not be any view of production. Here's the question. Might we have to change our view of what productivity is? The kingdom of God's productivity versus our own view of our own producing? Changing, the, changing our view of what's productive in the kingdom, what's productive in our lives? I think this is a challenge for every one of us. And we need to embrace it. Lastly, he believed in the man's inherent value as a person. His inherent value as a person. Didn't matter who he was, where he came from, he had compassion on him. We serve others because we serve them as Jesus does. Not because it's our duty or, or for some reason it will make us feel better or look better or because we feel sorry for them. We serve them because God made them. <laughs> and they have value to him. We should pray that we would be like Jesus when he looked at the crowds and he was moved with compassion. In one particular story, Jesus is moved with compassion and he, the, the disciples tell him, send them away and tell them to go get something to eat because they, they need to eat. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you give them something to eat. I was like, what? We, oh, we got like two little fish and two and some bread, and we don't, I, we don't have anything. Jesus multiplied what they had, and that's what he'll do for you if you're willing to help others in need. We'll end with 1 John 4, 12. 1 John 4, 12, 11 and 12, we'll read it. My dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. No one's ever seen God I want you to underline that little phrase in your Bible if you, if you can. No one's ever seen God ever. But if we love one another, God dwells deeply in us and his love becomes complete in us. His perfect love. What this essentially means is nobody, he says, nobody's ever seen God. Nobody knows what he looks like. But if we love each other, then you see him. And what I want to challenge you to do is when you look at your neighborhood nine, I'm not asking you to go and knock on their door and say, have you ever accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? I'm not asking you to do that. What I'm asking you to do is engage in their lives. Consider how you might get to know them. Consider how you might provide an opportunity to demonstrate and reveal the love of God in tangible, practical acts that would help them. To discover what their needs are. What I want you to do is I want you to put that little piece of paper on your refrigerator and I want you to fill it in if you don't know your neighbor's names over the next several months. As you meet them, you begin to fill it in. As you meet them, you begin to pray over them. As you discover their needs, you decide to help them in, in any way that you can. And then you begin, to demonstrate, you begin to say to them, you know, there's something missing in your life and I'd like to share it with you. So, I want you to focus on that. I want you to begin with prayer. Jesus is telling this expert in the law. He's asking, who is my neighbor? Wrong question. Wrong question. Jesus says, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, what kind of neighbor are you? That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus turns a theological discussion into a, a real-life situation and challenges his hearers and challenges us today to be the kind of neighbors that other people want. The question you should be asking is, what do my neighbors think of me? I wonder what their view of me is. 
when I come home and hit the clicker and go into the garage and the garage door goes down? What do they think of me? I want to challenge you to find out. Challenge you to be a Christian for the city. And a Christian for the city starts with the people that they live among. Last scripture is John 1.14 in the message. It says this, the word became flesh and blood. In the message Bible it says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus coming from heaven to earth. Jesus came from heaven and he came to live among us. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Become Jesus in the neighborhood. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the revelation of it, for insight, for understanding. We pray that you would help us to act on it, to be the ones that would hear what you say and then do it. All across the room, I just want you to think of your neighborhood. I want you to think of your houses that are around you. And I want you to consider them. I want you to see them in your mind's eye. Close your eyes, bow your heads. I want you to see them in your mind's eye. Father, as we see these houses, as we consider our neighborhood, as we consider our apartment community, the people who live above us and below us and to the side, as we consider the people that live around us, we ask you to teach us how to be a Christian Christian that's for the city, a Christian that loves the city, a Christian who loves our neighbors. Give us understanding, give us insight, give us opportunity. Cause inconveniences to give way to opportunity. <laughs> Lord, we pray that you would help us to see ways that we can help. pray that you would give us the kind of courage and the kind of boldness that will empower us to love, to share, to give, to be nice, just to, to open up. Father, I thank you for this. We choose. We choose you we choose our neighbors. We choose our neighbors. In Jesus' name.